Every day, a small group of people are making quantum leaps forward, building wealth faster than most dream possible, almost like they have the Midas touch. On Breakaway Wealth, we'll unlock the secrets to breaking out of the herd, thinking big and building wealth on our own terms. And now let's join our host, the creator of Create Tailwind, and your abundance advocate, Jim Oliver. Welcome back. This is Jim Oliver, your host. And with me today is Warwick Fairfax. Welcome, Warwick. Great to be here, Jim. You know, Warwick, I was reading your bio. And first, I guess, before we jump into that, let me, let me have you just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your company and what you do. Well, yeah, my uh, company is Crucible Leadership, and I try to help leaders bounce back from adversity. It could be a business failure, being fired, or even a personal challenge. How do you overcome it, get beyond it, and lead a life of significance? So that's, that's my uh, company, and I guess we'll chat in a moment. That really grew out of uh, my story in terms of my own financial challenge or crisis that I went through. So behind the company and if you will, there's my own personal story that kind of informs my perspective of how do you get beyond financial challenges and uh, live a life of significance, I guess you could say abundance and really a general sense of the word. Awesome. Well, you know, one thing in your bio that stands out to me is that you have a degree in philosophy, politics, and economics from Oxford. That's impressive. And then you have, not that that wasn't impressive alone, then you have an MBA from Harvard. So, from an education standpoint, I think that you've got, I uh, also like that you're an elder at Bay Area Church and also a International Coach Federation ICF designation, but philosophy, politics, and economics, that's an interesting degree. Well, it is. Uh, a few family members of mine uh, went to Oxford and actually my dad did the same thing. So at Oxford, it's a three-year degree because all you're doing is that subject and I majored in politics and economics. Politics is certainly at least the study of politics I found fascinating. Philosophy is a challenge. They ask you these big questions. How do you know you exist? And I don't know. I guess I just have the assumption that I do exist. And if I'm wrong, oh, well. But, you know, I have to say the other two I gravitated a bit more to than philosophy. But, you know, it does challenge your thinking, you know. Yeah. Ask you big questions. Yeah, you know, that, that, that is cool. You know, a lot of people that are listeners of this podcast are Austrian leaning in their economics and free market economics. Mm-hmm. You don't see that as, I, I mean, maybe you do, but I mean, I know I have a friend who's a PhD in economics and is Austrian, but you know, you don't see as much Austrian economics come out of a lot of the Ivy League schools here. I mean, is Oxford different or what, what would you say? Well, you know, that's a fascinating point because when I was at Oxford and at my, Oxford has a whole range of colleges. Uh, it's almost like a state federal system. So you have to be admitted by a college. And at my college, Balliol College, Oxford, in the late 70s, early 80s, it was very left wing. Hmm. We used to joke about the folks that did my uh, subject that they were so left wing that you're either Trotskyist, Leninist, Stalinist, Marxist, or fascist, fascist being anybody that's not any of the above. <laughs> so pretty much anybody that had come from the US, you know, like there was somebody I knew uh, came from Berkeley, which is, you know, a pretty progressive school. Yeah. He was considered pretty far right wing from that perspective because <laughs> he wasn't against, you know, destroying capitalism and, you know, overthrowing democracy. He was 
you know, for keeping those. So, yeah, I mean, certainly in their economics, very left wing. I remember I did a history of economics course on Smith, Ricardo and Marx. And, you know, Ricardo's a little bit in the middle. Smith, obviously, you know, Adam Smith's total free market. Yeah. Founder of, I suppose, that way of thinking. Yeah. And when the professor who was a Marxist said, well, I think there are some things in Ricardo, a little bit, you know, kind of in between, you know, my tutorial partner who was Marxist couldn't believe you could say there was anything other than Marx. So, yeah, they were totally... Wow, they were pretty far left in their uh, economics. So that I mean, I'm not. So I believe free markets are a good thing with appropriate regulation. So yeah, it was. But it's always good to be exposed to things that are way outside your own viewpoint. So yeah, yeah, no, that's really interesting. But I love this whole just the concept of turning personal failures. In, in turning those around. And my favorite quote of all time is adversity introduces a man to himself. I mean, that's the way it was said to me. Mm-hmm. You could, obviously, it works for adversity introduces a woman to herself. And I always think, you know, I always tell my kids, you're either winning or you're learning. So talk about, talk about that. How did that, I mean, talk about your journey, because I think it's an interesting and fascinating one. I want to hear more about that and how this, how this whole crucible leadership thing came about. Yeah, well, it really started growing up in a family media business. Uh, it was founded 150 years ago, actually by a person of great faith, as it happens. And it grew to be uh, one of the dominant media organizations of Australia. It had the equivalent of the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, the opinion leaders. But it also had uh, magazines, TV stations, newsprint mills. It was a very large diversified company, thousands of employees. So as I was growing up, I was seen as the heir apparent, at least by my father. There were different, you know, factions in the family, but that was certainly my father's perspective and the way the shareholding worked. I was probably on track to be uh, one, if not the dominant shareholder of the family block. 50% was publicly held, 50% was owned by the family. So so that was the expectation, and I'm one of these people that, you know, loyalty and duty, it's, I think of that phrase in the U.S. military, duty on a country. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of wired that way. I'm a very loyal person, so I didn't want to disappoint my dad, who I you know, love very deeply, and my parents. So my whole upbringing wasn't so much what do I want to do in life, it's how do I preserve the family company and indeed make it even greater than before. That was just the whole focus, so hence... Oxford, you know, stint on Wall Street, Harvard Business School. It was all about preparing myself to take a leading role. And I suppose because I always worked hard, got good grades, was diligent, it almost made it worse because I was almost like, you know, the good son that kind of works hard, tries not to disappoint, loyal. I mean, you know, it's like, I mean, as a parent, you want somebody like that, but it just fueled my father's and my parents' expectations that I would one day take the leading role. So in early 87, my dad died. He was in his 80s. I was from my dad's third marriage. And so once he died, and I was in my last year at Harvard Business School, there was a perception in the market that the company was in play. Uh, Stock price rocketed up, as I said, 50% was publicly held. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a sense that maybe some, all it would take is a few minor shareholdings to sell or create a domino effect. And you know, uh, back in the 80s when this happened, in 87, that was the time of a lot of corporate takeovers. Money was available for that. So 
and I was concerned about direction of management that I felt and my parents felt were making decisions that I felt weren't too good. So in uh, late 87, I launched a $2.25 billion Australian dollar takeover. And it succeeded in the sense that we were able to buy out the family shareholdings and indeed buy out all of the share, uh, public shareholding. But we ended up having too much debt. The other family members sold out. I was hoping not all of them would. October 87 stock market crash that really hit our asset sale program. So by late 87, we had too much debt. And even though I brought in new management that increased operating profits by 80%, which from my perspective showed that it wasn't being managed as well as it could be, it didn't really matter what the chief executive did uh, that I brought in at an operating level because our debt was too high. It was on me. So by late 1990, when Australia got in a pretty significant recession, the company went under. Newspapers, which were the dominant revenue stream of the company, newspapers are very cyclical and classified ads go up and down with the economy. So my desire being to preserve the family company, help it be stronger than before, and my actions directly resulted in it going under. So obviously financially, it grew up with a lot of money and a you know, beautiful house and, and all that. So, you know, I mean, I wasn't left with nothing, but my wealth, you know, went down by, I don't know, in, in theory, I probably at one point maybe had hundreds of millions of net worth, maybe, I suppose. I never really saw it because after I inherited, it was all tied up in loans and everything. But yeah, I mean, whatever the number was, it was a big number that went down a lot. But more than just the money, which has never been a huge motivator for me because I grew up with it, it was a sense that I let my dad down. And, you know, uh, since the founder was a person of faith, as, as I am, I felt like maybe I'd even let the creator God down in some sense. I mean, it was really, the 90s was tough struggling from what my hope had been to preserve the family company I ended up bringing it down. I mean, it still went on, right. uh, but not in family hands. I mean, it was a uh, financial crisis, a personal crisis. Yeah, it was tough on many levels. So then you find yourself in this crucible moment. Exactly. And so as I kind of write about, and, and you know, when you face a crucible moment, sometimes it's your fault. Sometimes it's not your fault. Again, you could lose a business, get fired, health challenge. You can either say this sucks, this is awful, and just hide under the covers and say that's it. Or you can say, yep, this was awful. But to your point, you know, it can be a learning experience. Okay, what do I learn from this? How do I bounce back from this? How do I kind of recover? And so that was a journey through the 90s and beyond when I kind of began to discover about myself that, I'm not a Rupert Murdoch kind of take charge executive, nothing wrong with that per se, but it's not me. I'm more of a reflective advisor. I can manage, you know, because uh, I'm pretty good at listening to people. I'm pretty discerning, but that's not what I prefer to do. Uh, I prefer more to advise and to write, uh, more a reflective advisor. And so what I do now in my writing and written a book about this and uh, crucible leadership in a general sense too, I'm trying to get published and do a lot of activity with blogging, social media. I'm much better where I am now, but it took a long time for me to figure that out. And uh, yeah, I, mean, I learned a lot about who I was and who I wasn't and what was important to me in, in life. So that was, um, when you face a crucible moment, you do face a fork in the road. Are you going to just say, I'm just going to give up on life? Or you can say, okay, I can get beyond this. You know, let's 
recover from this, which means recover financially, but also recover in terms of your sense of self-worth. If, if your business fails, not only is your net worth potentially wiped out, but your sense of self, your sense of self-respect, your reputation takes an enormous hit. That's as hard to recover from as, as the financial end of the crisis. Right. Well, that, you know, and so I think there's a lot of people, you know, business owners, you could be a professional, you could, you know, just things in life, like you said, health-wise. And, you know, I think of, of crucible moments using your term, and I still want to learn more about that and that definition of that. But, I mean, I think of those things in my life and, and when you, you know, is it kind of like to me, like I would describe, there are times in your life when you really just get kicked in the teeth you know, is, is, is that kind of what it is? And then? Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, a crucible moment is, it's really how you see it. It's something that happens to you, could be your fault or not. And it's a transforming experience. Who you are after that is not the same person as who you were before it. I like it, that. It, it, it's transformative. I mean, literally a crucible is like hot molten metal that comes together. It's, it's a furnace. You know, if you think of an image of a blast furnace and pouring right. hot, uh, you know, uh, metal into a mold, I mean, that's kind of what a crucible is. It's, uh, it's, it's a refining experience. It's certainly the, the ultimate learning experience. So for you to get to define a crucible, you could, go through, you could go through a challenge. It's not transformative. You know, maybe you could get laid off, but it's like, yeah, I never really liked that job anyway. And my boss was a jerk. And you know, I, I got a job two minutes after I left the first one because I was in demand. Well, that may or may not be a crucible moment for you. It could be just a speed bump. Crucible you know, moment is something that sets you back and, you know, you're in agony and that's more a crucible moment. Right, right. And so does everybody have crucible moments? Interesting question. I'd say it's hard to go through life without failing. It's right. hard to go through life without, it could be, self-imposed, like, you know, alcoholism, substance abuse, it could be losing a business. I mean, it's, I don't know everybody, but I would have thought there aren't too many, if you haven't gone through one, there's a pretty good chance that you will. Right. So even if you haven't gone through one, preparing for it, you know, is not a bad idea. I know you, one of the things you talk about, hope is not a strategy. Well, when you go through a crucible experience, it's good to have some idea of, well, how do I get out of this thing? Right. And if you haven't gone through it, it's like, well, when I do go through it, which will, will be likely, you know, what do I do? You sure. know, I didn't really think about this at the time because I wasn't prepared for it. I was just thinking about the family business, let's go. But if I had been prepared, would it have helped? I don't know. Maybe it would have shaved a few years off of the recovery process. It's still, still tough, but sure, yeah, would have helped. You know, I kind of think about this, you know, again, one of the things that we do um, with Create Tailwind is we help people build wealth, right? And by the way, sometimes it's people that have lost a significant amount of wealth. And then how do they rebound and how do you re... Because the, the hard part, like in your situation, is you had this wealth that couldn't be recreated in the way that it was created, right? So, right. you know, you didn't have another 150 years to, to build <laughs> the, this company the way that right. it was built and the reputation and everything else. And, you know, but there are times where there's a downturn in the stock market or a business fails or, or things like that. And one of the things that we do is we show people, okay, how do you build wealth from wherever you are? 
and and so I, I think that I see this the the philosophy of the crucible moment and how to change that direction. Because if if I had all my money in the stock market or all my money in mortgages in two thousand and eight, okay, well maybe from two thousand and nine on, I don't I got to change my direction in my wealth building, right? Or I got to change the direction of my life. One of the things that I really like is you say the goal of your life and your leadership should not be success, but significance. And, and I, I want you to talk more about that because, you know, I, I agree with that 100% and I'm a huge abundance advocate. And what it comes down to is contribution and significance in, in your impact. Talk more about that, Warwick. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. While I might say that money is not something I value per se, I'm not against wealth. I'm not against success. I mean, I'm, you know, I may not have quite as much as I might have, but I, you know, we're doing extremely well. I mean, just one example, we have a daughter living in Sydney at the moment and we're working there and we're trying to figure out how to get together for Christmas. And, you know, we just, we go to Australia a lot. We didn't want to go all the way there. So we decided, okay, let's meet halfway in Hawaii. Well, Hawaii at Christmas is probably like the most expensive time of year, but that was fine. You know, it was about family. And so we had a wonderful time on the big island. That was great. So I'm not against, you know, great vacations or wealth per se, but it's more, and I can speak from experience, you know, I grew up with about as much, you know, wealth and status as, as you could. I mean, it was, you know, an enormous amount of wealth, very well respected, but money in of itself, it doesn't satisfy. At the end of the day, you're not going to have on your tombstone how many hundreds of millions or billions or whatever you're going to inherit. It might be about family and friends, but ultimately, when I talk about a life of significance, it's serving a higher purpose, making the world a better place, helping others. There's some altruistic, idealistic element that you think is important. And to me, in terms of uh, getting a team together, even if it's about creating wealth, which again is not wrong, money doesn't motivate people. I mean, we, it just, I mean, it does to a degree, but if you, get a, if you have a team of 10, 20, 100, 1,000, you've got to have more than that. If you look at some of the iconic companies like Southwest, you know, their whole mission started as to have affordable travel to bring families together. That yeah. was sort of the unifying concept. Now, we can all think, well, that's a great mission and at a time when, you know, it used to be travel was a luxury. So it's, you look at some of the most successful companies and they had an ideal beyond just creating wealth that unifies and motivates. And so from my perspective, when I think of it from a personal perspective, it, yeah, when you talk about abundance, it's more than just money. It's abundance in family and relationships. It's an abundant life in terms of, you know, leaving a legacy, uh, helping others. So I think abundance to me has a broad sense of the word. But when you think about, okay, well, what does that mean to me? How do I figure that out? It starts with, okay, what did I learn from my crucible moment, my refining experience? How am I wide? Like I'm a reflective advisor. I'm not a take charge Rupert Murdoch business leader. So if I put myself in financial positions where that is needed, I'll fail, 100% guaranteed, because that's not how I'm wide. So why start a business with 100% chance of failure or 90, 99%? That's just dumb. You know? yeah, and sure. so start with how you're wired and then think about, okay, what's something I'm passionate about? And you look at some of you know, the great businesses, there's, there's a dream, whether it's you know, Walt Disney starting off with making animated cartoons. He felt like cartoons could be more than just 
simple stories we could have complex stories that could really broaden the level of entertainment that the medium was known for so most of these entrepreneurs they had a vision beyond just success they wanted to do something to change the world for the good in some sense if you can figure out how you're wide something you're passionate about that you, you feel is significant not only will you feel more rewarded personally in doing it but financially it has a much greater chance of succeeding so it's a kind of a win-win in terms of abundance on all fronts yeah you know i agree with you 100% one of the you know there's a great book called the richest man in babylon and one of the things he says is that invest in what you know, invest your time, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I was, I grew up kind of the opposite of you. I grew up in poverty and, and I was always taught that, you know, people that had money, they must have done something wrong. I was, it was this negative, you know, um, vision and this negative perception. And, you know, we were taught money is the root of all evil, but, but it's not, it's the love of money is the root of all evil, Right. If you go to the Bible, I mean, it's it's not, I mean, money is mentioned more than any other subject in the New Testament, but it's really don't love the money. I mean, I always say money gives you choices, choices give you freedom. Freedom to then tie into your philosophy of significance. That's where, you know, and maybe it's maybe it's time. Maybe the money buys you time to be significant. And then when you start a business, and your business, the goal is to create significance in your life and serve others. I think that's really where things just explode, like you said, with Walt Disney, which is a great example. No, I, I think that's true. I think, you know, like when, when you start a business, you've got to have a pretty good idea of uh, what's the economy doing, what's the market, what are the advantages, what are the pitfalls. Well, the same with money is if you don't have a lot of money, as, I, as I've had and I'm certainly still very comfortable, you've got to realize the Bible does say is, you know, is a root of all evil. Money can be tempting. You can start right. to think that you're better than the folks you grew up with. You know, they're idiots and I'm so smart because I made money. Well, maybe they just had gifted, different giftings. Maybe they wanted to be a school teacher. Nothing wrong with that. You know, being a school teacher is not better or worse than being an entrepreneur. So you start thinking that you're better than others. And yeah. then people start, you know, playing to that. We had lots of people wanting to be our friends because of the money we grew up in. And they're not real friends. They just want, they just want to grab onto the gravy train. So you've got to realize that and just realize just because you may be worth millions now, doesn't mean you're any better or worse than before or better or worse than your friends you grew up with. And so, you know, realize it can be corrupting if you let it. And, you know, if you have some touchstone, which for me is my, my faith, that helps if you have real friends that can keep you down to earth. So again, you say hope is not applicable. Just don't assume that money can't have a corrosive influence. If you realize it, you can have money, use it to, you know, um, help, you know, give your friends opportunities and vacations. Maybe they couldn't otherwise, you know, be a place where family can gather. I'm in Northern Michigan at the moment. We have a beautiful place on Lake Michigan, We've had family throughout the summer and we will have family. The whole goal of this wasn't just because it's a nice house on the water with incredible view. It was as a resource to bring family together and friends. Yeah. So it's money's not wrong. You just got to realize it can be tempting and there will people will try and use you and, you know, try and corrupt you if that's not overstating it. So you just realize that and money can be great. You just, you got to be careful like anything else in life. 
you know. Yeah, it's kind of like greed and ego and money are are bad partners to have in your life, right? When you have those things together. You know, Francis Chan, he talks about that he imagines that God is kind of like a silversmith and what like silversmiths would heat up the silver and all the impurities would rise to the top and they would they would scoop it out and they just kept doing that till they could mm-hmm. see their reflection in the pot of silver, so to speak. I don't know what it was really mm-hmm. called, a vat, I guess, of silver. And that God does that as well, where, you know, has challenges in our lives. And, and God doesn't ever give us a challenge that, that we can't overcome, but God never gives you the life that he isn't required to be in. And to your point, you know, where it could be just so easy, well, I don't need God, I don't need anything, right? I, it's just really easy for me because I got everything. Well, and, I, mean, that, I mean, that's just it. I mean, I grew up in a very nice part of Sydney. The 2008 housing crisis didn't affect Sydney. Housing prices just kept going up. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy how expensive the homes are where I grew up. But so there was a lot of people with money that weren't necessarily happy. You know, it doesn't make you happy in a, in of itself. But I was fortunate that the person who founded this dynasty 150 years ago, you know, it was an elderly church, a person of great faith. He really did everything well. Great husband, great dad. His employees loved him. And he created a successful business and a person of faith. From my perspective, every area of life, he did well. So it's, it's just realizing, I mean, it helps if you believe that there's some external force outside of yourself, a creator, from my perspective, you know, we go to a non-denominational church and evangelical church. You know, I'm all for everybody needs to find their own path, but it does help if you have something outside of yourself that says, you know, you're loved because of who God made you to be, not because of money or anything else. You're loved because of who you are. And so for me, I had to change my point of reference that I thought God had a plan to resurrect the company and I, you know, destroyed God's plan, which was somewhat naive and a bit simplistic theology. But I realized if God had wanted that to happen, it would have happened. And so, you know, God doesn't need my accomplishments. You know, he um, just loves me because of who I am. So having some sense of reference outside of yourself, it gives you a great anchor, a great foundation to, again, to use your terminology, to live a life of, of abundance. It really, you have to have a foundation in some from my perspective, some belief system, some anchor more than just success, because then you actually enjoy the money and the good things of life more when you feel like you're doing it for the right reason, like sharing it with family and friends. You know, it is possible to have abundance and not be depressed. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, yeah. there are some people, if you give them truth serum, say, are you really happy? You give them right. truth serum and says, well, actually, I've never told anybody this, but I have houses all over the place and planes, but no, I'm not happy. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a lot of people like that. I mean, and, you know, um, my friend, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, he always says, hey, when, I, when I'm speaking and I say God, if you're one of those people that think Bach and Beethoven, they just crawled out of sludge and I can't, and I can't play chopsticks, but, but they just, I mean, when I say God, you just think universe. Like the universe is just exactly. doing this to you. And so I always like that. We don't apologize for our faith on this show. So we're, we just give examples of we're not, and we're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, but exactly. the, the way that we show people how to build wealth 
is biblical and it's in the 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 parody of the town or not the parody the the uh the parable of the talent thank you work see you know i didn't go to oxford no i'm just kidding (laughs) (laughs) the parable of the talents i just couldn't find that word in my my, my head right there but is so important because god's telling you what to do with your money is to put it in motion and to bless other people right you you know the, the one who just stuck it in the in the in the ground Right. You created that person. You meant to, you meant to use it. So, you know, he made us creative for a reason. He That's gave right. us talents for a reason. He doesn't make mistakes. If you have a talent to be an entrepreneur or make money, yeah. my attitude is praise God. That's great. It's just yeah. as long as you're doing it for the right reasons and you have some, uh, obviously from my perspective, going to church helps, but having some friends around you who can kind of keep you real and say, hang on, I think you'd you know, believe your own press clippings. I mean, just let's come down to earth a little bit, you know? Yeah. You're the same person we grew up with. So, you know, just, it's great that you have money, but just let's, you know, let's get the ego down a bit. So long as you have some good friends along with you, to me, again, that's part of hoping not a strategy. Having good friends around you can really help protect you and keep your sense of self as you're becoming more successful. Yeah, so certain strategies you can do to help you live a, um, a fully orbed, balanced life and enjoy life. Yeah. You know, by the way, the, the people that have the most money, they're not flaunting it or, you know, I mean, the people that really have serious money, I mean, billionaires, mm-hmm. you know, there's some billionaires that flaunt their money, but most of them, you would never know they had billions of dollars. They're, like like Warren Buffett, I don't think he's. Doesn't he, doesn't he live in the home he grew up in or something? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I yeah he lives about ninety stuff. miles south of where I'm at right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. So you're probably more aware than I am, but I'm sure he has nice things. But he just seems like from the outside, he has a pretty sane view of himself and yeah, money and what have you. Yeah, you know, I think that's really interesting because it is about significance and and you know. I think you answered this question, but you know why integrity, faith, and uh, leading, and why is that so important to leading a life of significance? Yeah, I mean, I think you know if your faith or your value system, and it could be in a religion, philosophy, whatever it is, it gives you a sense of what does significance mean. So, from my you know Christian faith perspective, you know it informs what's important and what's not important in life. And again, significance is really about, you know, from my faith perspective, using all that I have for God's glory, which, you know, I'm a reflective advisor. So I like to uplift people, encourage people to be who they are, to pursue talents and passions that they have, that they feel will make a world a better place. I feel like in my own world, when I'm not, you know, doing nonprofit stuff, like I'm an elder board of church and I was on the board of a Christian school, so I feel like I have my own ways in which I feel like I'm, you know, serving God in a sense. So I think our faith can inform that. And, uh, you know, we need to live lives of humility, not consider ourselves better than we are or better than others, and live lives of integrity, doing the right thing, not cutting corners. You know, I love the book that I think most of your listeners will be familiar with, Jim Collins' Good to Great. Because it seemed yeah. like it was humble leaders that were driven but they had integrity. To me, integrity means doing the right thing no matter what, not cutting corners, not saying, gee, you know, if I promise some, uh, you know, guy that I'm doing business with that I'll provide his order in uh, 20 days when I know it's going to take 100 and I'll just apologize later. Well, that's dumb. He'll be ticked off. 
he's much more likely to give you some grace if you're straight with him saying, look, it's going to take me 100 days to fulfill this order, but our quality is so good that we think it's worth it. Just be up front. You know, basically, lack of integrity, it's just, it, it's a poor business decision. It will always come back to bite you. So just be honest, live a life of integrity, you'll be a better friend. All things being equal, you know, it sounds a bit idealistic, you'll be more successful. Nobody wants to work with somebody, you know, would you buy from somebody who doesn't have integrity? No. Buy somebody who doesn't have integrity. Because not only is it a poor ethical decision, it's a poor business decision. So integrity makes ethical, biblical, and just plain business sense. So, yeah, does that kind of... Yeah. So tell me what you... You know who's who's a, a a potential client for you, and and what process do you take your clients through? So basically, it doesn't have to be somebody who's been through a crucible uh, moment or a crisis, but often it is somebody that uh, is an idealist, somebody that wants to lead. It could be a big business, a small business, could be a nonprofit, somebody that wants to make the world a better place, live a life of significance, but they're not sure how to get there. And so what I explained to them through crucible leadership, it starts with being refined by your crucible moment. What can you learn from that? Maybe there's something you went through that you said, boy, I never want anybody to go through what I went through. And that maybe is a cause you want to promote. Then it shifts to design. How are you designed? How are you wide? How did God, from my perspective, create you? You've got to understand that. That's foundational. And once you understand how you're wide, what is something that you're off the charts passionate about? Could be something you don't want others to go through. It could be like Walt Disney thinking of, I'd love to have animated cartoons share a wider story, something that's beyond the traditional media. And once you know, you understand how you've been refined, how you designed, what you're passionate about, which helps you set your vision, then you can uh, have more chance of success of making that vision become reality because you know how you're wired, you've learned from your failures, you're off the charts passionate about it, and then you begin to assemble a team of like-minded travelers who, want, who believe in your vision and want to help make it reality. So it's, it's really a process of understanding who you are, understanding what you're passionate about, and trying to make that become reality. So if you have those elements, it doesn't guarantee success, but it greatly improves your chance of being successful in whatever business or endeavor you want to launch. Yeah, that's awesome. So crucibleleadership.com website. I would tell you in the audience, go to the, to, the, to the website. And one of my favorite words, one of my favorite things in life is perseverance. And Warwick has a great article on perseverance, the key to bringing our vision to reality. And I don't want you to give that article away, like what it's about, but I want people to go read that article because in my opinion, perseverance is, if you don't have perseverance, then you're really doomed because you have to keep trying and you have to persevere through. Uh, but there'll, there'll always be setbacks. Back to Southwest again, as yeah. some of your listeners would know, when they first started all the legacy airlines, of course, they wanted to put them out of business. Standard operating procedures, not personal. Yeah. I get it. And, you know, they had to go through many legal fights before they finally got off the ground. But the first few years, you know, it looked really, really tough, but they didn't give up when many would have, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and there's a great quote and I can't remember which president it's about perseverance, like is omnipotent, but I, uh, I can't 
can't find it in my head right now, but um, I'll share that maybe next uh, episode. But other than the Bible, Warwick, what's a book that maybe has just made a huge difference in, in your life? You know, I think of Doris Kearns Goodwin, and uh, she wrote a book, Team of Rivals, about Abraham Lincoln. When historians are surveyed, he, he always comes out number one. I mean, Washington, both Roosevelt's are, are amazing presidents, but there's something about Lincoln in which a lot of people today and business owners could learn from. He yeah. assembled a group of people that thought he was this country bumpkin from Illinois, which back then was out West, believe it or not, in the right. 1860s, and that he was an uneducated, you know, they had zero respect for him, his rivals for the Republican nomination. Yeah. But yet over the course of several years, they began to have great respect for him. So he assembled people he thought was best for the country, even though they had no respect for him. So that's a sense of integrity. He had a sense of um, self-awareness that he was bulletproof. You could tell him, Mr. Lincoln, you're an idiot in this area. And he could say, okay, I, I may well be. Tell me what it is and help me understand. Like he, he was bulletproof that way. He was, had this such innate sense of self-confidence that it gave him this incredible humility. Sounds a bit of a oxymoron, if you will, to be humble and self-confident, but he was. And so, you know, you want to understand how to be successful in life in, the, in, the, in that full range of that word what he did and how he assembled his team and how just humble and self-aware he was, it's just mind-blowing how somebody could be a human being and be, have those personal characteristics. A lot to learn from that. That's awesome. I have not read that book, so I, I, I will be ordering that off after we get off this recording. You know, it's funny, one time when I was interviewing for a position, the, the guy that was interviewing me said, I don't think that your ego drive is high enough. And I said, I, I know. And I said, I said, well, uh, that's interesting. And, and you know, this guy was probably 20, 25 years older than me. I right. said, have you ever read the book? Good to great. Right. And he said, no. And I said, well, I'm going to send it to you. And, and I sent it to him and he did comment and he said, okay, I understand what you're talking about because I said, you know, leadership isn't about ego. And if no. you've got some test that that is what your assessment test is telling you that, that good leaders have high egos, then, you know, the, the 1950s are over and you need to get, and this is in the and, 90s. And that's what I loved about good to great is, you know, they did some empirical study based on the stock market, on, I don't know, yeah. 15 year trend or what have you about what companies have financially outperformed their competitors in the stock market. And so yeah. it's just pure empirical data. And it was people who were humble, but yet driven. Yeah. And so it's like the numbers are clear. It's ego in of itself. It might even be a detriment to financial performance if it's all about you. Yeah. So I, I love when, when the data affirms what, the way you think the world should be. So uh, that was very encouraging. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's like if you think of uh, all the great leaders and, you know, you can start with. Jesus. I mean, there was no, I mean, there was a lot of humility, like you said, Lincoln. I mean, there's, there's just example after example after example. And one of the cool things is, you know, when, when we're, we, when we work with our clients to try to show them, and I can tell just from your style is it's not, Hey, let me tell you how great work is. The client 
is the hero of the story. We're just the guide to help them, you know? Um, Absolutely. And, you know, over the years, I've done a lot of executive coaching, so I'm very hardwired to helping people accomplish their dreams. It doesn't have to be my dream, my faith, my whatever, just so long as they're accomplishing what they think is important in life. And it's more, you know, having the questions. I mean, so often it's, it's the questions that are the, uh, the key to helping others and um yeah it's you know helping people i mean again i love the phrase you use abundance and helping people really think about well what is abundance to me living a life of abundance does mean living a life of significance the two to me overlap and so helping people understand that and you know what is happiness it can hopefully help people avoid some pitfalls the last thing you want to be is in your late 80s or 90s on your deathbed, you've been divorced numerous times, your kids hate you, and you're all alone. At that point, it's like, okay, maybe I took the wrong path, but it's too late then. Yeah, you, just, you don't want to be that person, you know, millions yeah. or billions, but no family, no friends, and everybody hates you. It's like, is you just don't want to be that person, you know? Nobody ever stands up in a eulogy and says, let me tell you about my dad. My dad had more money then anybody, you know, that's, that's not what happens. Right. And so that significance with your family, with your friends, with strangers, with your community, I love, I love that word significance and, and significance and abundance go hand in hand. And, you know, Warwick, I could probably talk to you about this all day (laughs) long because I, you know, really am interested and I would encourage anybody listening to go to crucibleleadership.com, read some of the material on there, schedule a meeting with Warwick and see if there's a way for him to help you and guide you and coach you because I can tell that you are passionate about that. You've gone through some adversity, a lot of different adversity. You know, your adversity, my adversity are different, but adversity still introduces a person to themselves and it teaches you how to go through it. And those crucible moments in our lives, when we get kicked in the teeth, you have to know how to handle it. And I think, Warwick, what you're doing and showing people that and helping people is, is tremendous. So thank you very much for being on the show. I appreciate your time. Not at all. Thanks, Jim. It's been great to be here. All right. Till next time, break away, lead a life of significance and abundance. I'm Jim Oliver. Thank you for joining us. Till next time. Want to become your own banker and build wealth on your own terms? We'd love to help. Go to createtailwind.com to learn more and schedule a complimentary consultation.